You're listening to the Illinois Farm Talk podcast. Here are your hosts, Ben and Garth. The Honorable, the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States in this Honorable Court. We'll hear argument first this morning in Case 18-540, Rutledge versus Pharmaceutical Care Management Association. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Pharmacy benefit managers are drug middlemen that reimburse pharmacists for the cost of prescription drugs. Those reimbursements are frequently below a pharmacist's cost. That drives pharmacists out of business and it has left many communities without a pharmacist. Ag 900 responded to that practice by regulating what PBMs pay pharmacists. That response isn't preempted for three reasons. It doesn't regulate benefits, it doesn't regulate plan administration, and it doesn't regulate or discriminate against ERISA entities. Is your approach focusing on uh, who is being regulated uh, or what is being regulated? It is focused on what is being regulated. As I said at the outset, our test is, does the state law directly regulate a central manner of plan administration? Now, you're right, Mr. Chief Justice, that we devoted a portion of our brief to refuting what we understood to be uh, respondents' only way of distinguishing travelers, which was to say that the law in travelers fell on insurers and not plans themselves, whereas the law here does. And our response to that argument was twofold. First, to say that that's just a misreading of the state law here. It doesn't apply directly to plans. But more importantly, secondly, that even if it did, it wouldn't matter because at the end of the day, pharmacy reimbursement just isn't a central matter of plan administration. And the second, as my friend mentioned, is that if the state law produced economic effects as to force the ERISA plan to adopt a certain scheme of coverage, it would indeed be preempted. Well, Here, it's, not as the, Your Honor, it's not the state, state or the pharmacy's uh, fault that the PBMs have such Byzantine procedures that affect drug prices. Okay. Um, along similar but different lines, um, what do we do with the fact that there are plenty of ERISA plans that operate without uh, pharmacy benefit managers? There are plenty of pharmacy benefit managers that provide services to non-ERISA plans. Um, and of course, your clients here are, as I understand it, all pharmacy benefit managers and no ERISA plans. We, we don't have an, an ERISA plan that's actually complaining about this before us, as I understand it. Yes, that's right. I mean, there are there are amicus briefs filed by sponsors of ERISA plans, but the plaintiff in this case, and therefore the respondent here, is the the Pharmacy Benefit Manager Association. Really, our point is that, that Act 900 doesn't regulate central plan administration. And to pick up on, on Mr. Waxman's last answer, when, when the court talks about central plan administration and binding plans to things, really what it's talking about is is binding plans to decisions about who's a beneficiary, what's the benefit, uh, what's the degree of coverage, that's the copay, coinsurance rate, et cetera, and how those things are determined. It, it's not rate. 
It's not what a third-party administrator pays for a service provider. And the fact that that's what we're talking about here really makes this case exactly like Travelers and makes this an easier case because Travelers has already addressed that issue. Lastly, to, to end on a question that Justice Gorsuch asked, which is about the limiting principle. I think that's really the problem with PCMA's argument. There's no limiting principle. If you accept their position that cost, any time a regulation imposes cost, that can lead to preemption because it might affect the benefits calculation, that really has no limiting principle. It would frankly preempt things like state minimum wage laws that have exactly that same effect. So we would ask that this court reverse the judgment below. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. Hello, I am Ben Calcaterra, and I am here with Garth Reynolds and Cody Sandusky, and we are here to bring you the next episode of Illinois Farm Talk by the Illinois Pharmacist Association, brought to you by the Law Office of Joseph J. Bogdan. In this episode, we will debrief the oral arguments heard today in the long-awaited Rutledge v. PCMA Supreme Court case. This case has garnered national attention, and IPHA had boots on the ground in Washington to support pharmacists across the country. So let's get started. Hello, Garth. Hello, Cody. Hello, Ben. Hello, Ben. So today was a very important day. Both of you two, Garth and Cody, representing IPHA, were in Washington, uh, flew in for the Supreme Court hearing, uh, Rutledge versus PCMA. And if if a few of you out there listening have not been paying attention, this is a very important case that came out of the state of Arkansas. Uh, Leslie Rutledge is the attorney general for the state of Arkansas who is arguing this case on behalf of the state of Arkansas. Uh, Arkansas, on behalf of their pharmacist and pharmacy association, put together a law uh, several years ago to give pharmacies protection against things like MAC prices and giving them the opportunity to decline a claim if it was paid below cost. Doesn't that sound like a fantasy land that we would all like to participate in? Well, here's the deal. It passed, it became law, and then PCMA said, nope, we're going to challenge this. So they challenged it. It's moved through appellate courts and appeals and, and made its way all the way to the highest court in the land. And here we are today listening to oral arguments on if uh, Arkansas law, uh, law 900, isn't it, guys? Uh, some yeah, Act 900. Act 900 out of the state of Arkansas. The question to the Supreme Court is, does this law hold up? And it all surrounds ERISA. And ERISA is something that is, is kind of difficult to, to understand until you really dig deep into the woods. But, but it basically is asking, does this law preempt a federal statute saying that all uh, employee health benefit plans are created equal and uniform and cannot be uh, 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 guided by dif differing state laws to set prices? And that's what PCMA is basically arguing. Correct me if I'm wrong, Garth. Is, is there a better explanation to the ERISA preemption that we're, we're arguing here today. Well, Ben, I, I think you hit on this. This is a state's rights issue. And I think when we're looking at ERISA, especially with the preemption clause, when, that, when it was written back in the 70s, it was really to try to be a large umbrella for health insurance as it was developing in that model. 
And as we all know, PBMs did not exist. They did not exist in any shape, way, shape, or form. But those preemptions, you cannot have such a broad interpretation. It really does start to step on the constitutional rights of the states to be able to regulate insurance that if impacts their citizens. And that's really another part of what is at the core of this case. It is really a states' rights issue. Do the states have the right to regulate a PBM who operates in their state and impacts the daily health and lives of the citizens of their state? Absolutely. And one of the key components for those of you who did listen, and especially for those who did not, is trying to differentiate the difference between a plan and a PBM and who is responsible for the plan benefit administration, which we all believe is the actual plan themselves, versus do the PBM's functions, meaning their contracts with pharmacies and payment and reimbursements to pharmacies, do those affect the plan administration by the insurance plan itself? That's one of the key arguments that we heard today in, in the oral arguments for the Supreme Court case, and that is something that is is being talked about a lot. So now that we've kind of given the base of what's happening and, and, and built this up, we're going to jump into an interview here. Uh, Garth and Cody had the opportunity not only to listen to the oral arguments in Washington, which is super cool, and I am very jealous that I, I could not be there with them to t- partake in that awesome experience, but... They were also able to get all kinds of of feedback and commentary from all of the important people that are involved in this case. So one of those people is the CEO of the Arkansas Pharmacist Association, John Vinson. And Garth and Cody had the opportunity to interview him as a debrief this evening, Uh, this evening being Tuesday, October 6th, the day of the Supreme Court oral argument. So... Let's get into this interview. Uh, Cody and Garth interviewing John Vinson from the State of Arkansas Pharmacy Association. Here we go. Hello, welcome to this edition of Farm Talk. This is a special edition from Washington, D.C. I'm Cody Sandusky, president of IPHA. I'm here with Garth Reynolds, the executive director of IPHA, and John Vinson, the CEO of the Arkansas Pharmacists Association. Gentlemen. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Garth, for having me on. Thank you for coming. Well, John, we can definitely say today was a historic day. Absolutely. So happy that didn't think this day was ever going to come. I mean, 2020 has been an unusual year for sure, but we're so pleased to see this day come to fruition. It's so rare for a case to make it to the U.S. Supreme Court, to my knowledge. First case in United States history that directly impacts pharmacists and our ability to practice and care for our patients ever heard an argument before the U.S. Supreme Court. Absolutely. And I think just for our listeners, just as we've been doing, you know, as as you did yesterday with the national organizations and trying to um, prep everybody, I think we need to kind of take everybody through the steps of like who helped present this case on our behalf and then we can talk about the other side as well so sure so pbm reform and reform of the broken market pbm could easily stand for pharmacy broken market right there's lots of challenges that we're all 
working through and it doesn't matter if it's dispensing drugs, providing services or being a provider, if you don't have a fair market to negotiate for compensation, you can't provide care for your patients. So there's been lots of opportunity around the nation, all 50 states and PBM reform. Uh, our state, the most meaningful legislation that was passed happened in 2015, which is Act 900, which is what this case is about. This case was, uh, <clears throat> because it had teeth and it was meaningful legislation, the PBM Trade Association at the national level, PCMA, sued the state of Arkansas in 2015. It made its way through the district court, Eastern District of Arkansas Federal Court, to the Eighth Circuit of Appeals in St. Louis, and eventually the Arkansas Attorney General petitioned to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the case was accepted in January of 2020, January 10th, 2020. Fast forward to today, I guess originally it was scheduled for April 27th, it was delayed because of the pandemic. The oral arguments occurred today. And for the state of Arkansas, Nick Brawny, the Solicitor General, that and there's several states that have a Solicitor General, not all of them, but ours does. And that's what an SG does, is argue before Supreme Court cases. And Nick Brawny represented very well today the state of Arkansas rest, as well as the entire profession of pharmacy. And then Fred Liu, one of the uh, Deputy Solicitor Generals for the Solicitor General of the United States represented and weighed in on the side of Arkansas to represent, you know, reversing the the bad decision and upholding the ability to regulate and and employer-sponsored plans as the second set of of lawyers weighing in our side, and then they were followed up, of course, by PCMA's attorney Seth Waxman arguing on their behalf. I think it's important for our listeners to understand that. Um, not every case does the Solicitor General's Office of the United States step in, um, not only in just a brief, but in, in actually helping argue the case. Right. So the U.S. Solicitor General or the United States of America was asked to weigh in on this case. And they submitted a, first of all, they submitted a, a brief that suggested the case be heard, which it eventually was accepted. Then they submitted an amicus brief on behalf of the AG, AG Rutledge of Arkansas in support of our, our case. And then they were invited in to actually argue. So they had 10, I don't exactly remember exactly how many minutes, but at least 10 minutes, it may have been more like 15, where Fred Liu weighed in and, and argued. I wouldn't say it's rare because the Solicitor General's office is, probably argues more cases than anybody else in the country statistically, mm -hmm. but it's unusual for them to be asked on your case. Of the only 80 cases a year that are accepted, just a handful of those also have the Solicitor General asked to argue the case. Well, I think it was a great partnership between the Arkansas SG and the United States SG because they kind of helped set each other up. And I think, you know, the that um, Solicitor General Brawny is that correct? Mm -hmm. Solicitor General Brawny really kind of helped set the stage and kind of duck and weave some of the questions and loops that the justices were probably trying to get him to step into a little bit. And um, the Solicitor General Lou definitely started swinging with a sledgehammer around on a lot of their questions. And we were very impressed with um, a lot of the statements of the questions that came out of, out of his part of it as well. 
Yeah, we were very pleased to hear that. We agree with you. Um, <clears throat> of course, Nick Bronny did a wonderful job. I mm -hmm. think he did an excellent job. Absolutely. But Fred Lou batting cleanup, if you will, kind of tying into any loose ends that might have been left from the first set of arguments, I think, helped to bring clarity to the justices mm -hmm. in favor of Arkansas and in favor of pharmacists and patients. Absolutely. And, um, and I think you touched on this, John, during the um, NCPA post-analysis, but you brought a very good point that I believe that um, the Arkansas Solicitor General um, brought in examples of specific towns that had small independent pharmacies that this is the only access to medication and pharmacist care. Yeah, it was excellent to see in the official record, Supreme Court case argued October 6, uh, 2020, that he referenced Hampton, Arkansas, and Calhoun County, which has a single pharmacy that services a very rural and underserved community. In this case, that pharmacy is still in business today, Hampton Medical Pharmacy. Uh, if it weren't in, in existence because of these anti-competitive business practices or deceptive trade practices that PBMs engage in, then the patients of that community would lose access to care altogether. That's what this case is about. I know there's a lot of legal jargon. There's a lot of what in the world is ERISA? What does this really mean? At the end of the day, what it's about is it's about do patients have access to the best talent and the preferred pharmacy of choice in their local community rather than being forced to a pharmacy or to a physician or to a hospital they don't really want to use. Absolutely, and I think we all know of examples in Illinois where we have pharmacies are in that same situation. I think I can think of a number of counties where Cody and I both are are from, um, whether it's in Hardin County or even Polk County, where you know th there's single pharmacies there, and it's you have no real infrastructure for patients to travel. And this is an argument we've brought up time and time and time again throughout all of Illinois, specifically in the Medicare Part D plan, where it, you can't assume that someone can just travel 20 to 30, 40, 50 miles away for, for patient care. Yeah, the, the other example he used, Gillette, is actually a community that has lost its pharmacy. And that pharmacy, those people in that community now do have to travel 20 miles or 20 minutes each way for a 40 mile round trip to access health care, to access a pharmacy. There are other pharmacies in Arkansas in the last year, even though our legislation has not been totally thrown out, it's been effective and it's being enforced and it's helped to keep many of the pharmacies open. We have lost pharmacies in communities like Junction City, like Strong and like Marvell, Arkansas, in the southern part of our state and in the eastern part of the state. In some of the areas where life expectancy is lower than other parts of the state, where access to care is less. I guess I would just, uh, just a personal question. I mean, how does it feel to be the state association, how the state that is the, the drum major for every other state association and every other state pharmacy system, um, that has to be a tremendous uh, amount of pride and weight on your shoulders. It does feel good to be part of this fight because it's the fight for good. It's the mm -hmm. fight for a better America, a better mm -hmm. local community. Uh, this fight is about Anywhere USA versus Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there have been great leaders before me that have 
at least from our association point of view, to help get us to where we are today. But even more importantly than that, our members. We have, just like Illinois, like a lot of other states, Iowa, Oklahoma, Louisiana, New York. I'm going to leave somebody out, and I don't mean to. Washington, lots of great innovative practices in Washington. There are many, many states that have contributed to this, and I know we talked about this on the pregame analysis, but even though all 50 states have passed some form of reform, there certainly have been states where the reform was broad enough and strict enough to strike a nerve, you know, mm -hmm. which you don't want to be sued and you don't necessarily want it to go to court. But when it does happen and when it does go to court, it's nice to see that sunlight being sh the sunlight coming out of the, you know, from behind the sure. clouds to be a disinfectant on what's bad and what's right. broken in this system. Thank you, Cody, for that question. Yeah. I think that's a good segue into starting to look at the arguments of Seth Waxman from PCMA and some of his, I would almost say, general complaining as part of their justification. And I think you just brought it up. You know, we've, we've, most states have passed some form of PBM reform. And I think it was interesting that he was using that as an argument to state that it would just made it too complex and just too hard for them to be able to administer pharmacy benefits for patients. It would be too complex to actually pay a fair price to, to improve patient care. It's incredible that they would say that and ironic based on the fact that they may have a single PBM may have several hundred or several thousand MAC lists for the same drugs and they may pay different rates between one pharmacy and another pharmacy on opposite sides of the street. If it was about simplicity and about lower prices and about better care, why would they do that? You're exactly right. And I think some of us remember, you know, back in the 90s when things were still very crooked, but maybe even a little bit simpler, nowhere near the complex MAC structures as, as today that it, it's interesting to see that they were trying to use that argument, putting it on us, that we're the ones pulling the levers and pulling the strings to make it so harmful to everyone. I think if you, if you read the AG's brief, amicus brief from Arkansas, or if you haven't, simply use your favorite search engine on the internet and look up Supreme Court case 18-540 and go read the brief from the AG. But I think I understand their strategy to talk about the complexity and administration across multiple states, but I feel like it was really like if you've ever seen any of these magic tricks on videos or on televisions, it was the sleight of hand where you thought you saw something in the left hand, but it was really in the right hand was the strategy that they were using. And I think it was interesting to see that in some of um, PCMA's rebuttal to some of the arguments that it was um, Justice Gorsuch that I believe that brought up probably, in my mind, one of the clearest questions of the entire um, hour-long oral arguments was, do we have an ERISA plan that has a complaint here? Or ha and the answer is no. No, it's not actually the plans themselves or the employers who sued. It's actually the middleman who actually don't even represent central administration of the plan or actually make the the decisions on how the plan is designed it's simply the middleman 
Well, let's talk about, um, I know you uh, were fortunate enough to be part of a post-argument um, analysis with NCPA and APHA and NASPA and um, had the opportunity to have a detailed discussion with a, an attorney who had uh, clerked for Justice Sotomayor and had worked with uh, Justice Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit. And um, I believe that she gave some really good detail and some hope because she's used to a lot of the, as we said, the legal jargon and a lot of the um, not straightforwardness that the Supreme Court um, presents itself in for most of us who try to understand um, court cases. And this is completely different than most court cases that we would think about. She brought a lot of optimism to that show and she shared with the listeners um, very detailed analysis and information about where she thought each of the justices might land. I mean, it's just simply a prediction. It's like going on college game day and predicting who might win each college football game. So there's no guarantees with what her predictions are, but she's certainly an expert, graduated top of her class, Georgetown, has clerked under uh, Justice Sotomayor, also had worked with uh, Justice Kavanaugh when he was in the Circuit Court of Appeals in D.C. So she's very, very sharp and understands how these cases work. One of the interesting questions I thought, not related to your question, but do you think the law clerks will have any influence over <laughs> over yeah. their decisions? And she said, well, they'll listen to the law clerks, and certainly we served as advisors, but these are brilliant attorneys. These are brilliant uh, and best of the best attorneys in the United States, and they'll certainly put forth a thoughtful decision. She did give us good odds. Mm -hmm. You know, we certainly grilled her to say, are you just saying that because we, <laughs> we asked you to be on our program? And she, no, she really feels good about our chances now no promises i'm you know we're cautiously optimistic i'm sure garth you want to comment on your feelings about that i'm definitely um cautiously optimistic too you know it's just it, it's interesting because and as you said these justices are very learned and top of their class and i think we always look at the political process that we see that appoints judges but um listening to the justices today can should give you a whole new appreciation for the legal system and appreciation for law and how it's and how it's presented and how the supreme uh, court really takes its job seriously it's definitely not a, cir a circus or a kangaroo court that i think a lot of people may perceive it as at times i think one silver lining is had the case been live arguments where you may have only seen 50 members of the public actually make it into the course into the court for the case. I know that during that pregame, there were over 4,000 views of the pregame analysis. There were probably today during oral arguments, thousands of pharmacists and patients and those tuned into this issue listening live. And so just simply from a, a public relations or from a PR, from an educational value, the, the arguments being argued through teleconference gave an inside lens to this broken market and what needs to happen to change it to improve access to care in America like you wouldn't have seen had they been in person. Absolutely. And I think in wrapping up our discussion of the court case is a reminder that the Solicitor General of Arkansas got to give the final rebuttal. And, John, I believe that you made a, a statement in the uh, uh, post-case analysis was 
that he he really was bringing home the point. I believe he he talked about uh, minimum wage, if I if I remember. Yeah, think about that for a second. If the justices uphold the Eighth Circuit's decision, and ERISA does preempt state law, and you're not able to regulate reimbursement rates between PBMs and pharmacists and community pharmacy settings, or really any setting, pharmacies or pharmacists, if they do that and they don't reverse this decision, where does it end? I mean, where does ERISA preemption end? I mean, next, are we going to have pharmacists performing brain surgery? You know, even though we may not be trained, but we, we can because of ERISA preemption. I know that's absurd to think about that, but the Solicitor General, to your point in his closing argument, how ridiculous this is when it's not the plan itself, but it's a middleman. I mean, our pharmacies have to follow state law and follow state board of pharmacy regulations. Our pharmacies have to follow minimum wage requirements, which is a rate regulation. Uh, they may have to pay certain rates on utilities based on state regulations. Why would the PBM not be subject to state law in what reimbursement rates they pay, which would be rate regulation. So I think that's a, a really strong argument by the Solicitor General, and he tied it into a previous court decision from Travelers, and that case was referenced to a lot by both the SG and by the um, SG of the United States, Deputy SG Fred Liu, and I hope that that helps sway their opinions to victory for us. You mentioned their their arguments about the complexity earlier, and to me, listening to that, it, it was like PCMA was trying to play victim to circumstances they've created, which is just a, a slippery slope on their own part. It's almost, to me at least, it seemed like they're on the run. Um, so I don't know if this is an instance we've got the dog cornered and they're trying to bite with all they've got, or or if, if this is uh, just a golden opportunity for us. Absolutely. And I, I th it, well, and I guess with that, time will tell because I think it's interesting that um, they'll vote in closed session on Friday, which I was surprised to learn that, that they'll be voting this week. But we don't get to hear any of that decision until probably they have up until June. So... But with that, I do want to thank John Vincent, from the CEO of the Arkansas Pharmacists Association, for joining us. And John, I want to give you the last word here. Yeah, a couple of remarks. First of all, thank you to pharmacists of Illinois. Thank you to the Illinois Pharmacists Association for helping us not only financially with the legal expenses of this case. It's expensive to support a case to the U.S. Supreme Court, and so... We could not do it without all 50 states joining in, and you were one of the first ones to say, yes, we want to be a part of that. So thank you for that. It's incredibly important. Uh, our SG of Arkansas, our AG, uh, this decision in this case is going to have profound implications for the practice of pharmacy nationwide for years to come and provide clarity for any additional policy changes that need to be made at the state and federal level. And finally, there are human beings involved in these policy decisions and judicial interpretations. It's easy to forget that, and we must not forget that when you think about the oath of a pharmacist that we take. Lives are literally at stake, and this is no more apparent than right now 
in the middle of a global pandemic. Thank you all for fighting for our patients and our local communities during these extraordinary times. Again, thank you, John, and thank you to the Arkansas Pharmacists Association for helping take the lead and, and point man as we, we take this fight literally all the way up um, to the Supreme Court. And with that, we'll re- hear a word from our sponsors. Joseph J. Bogdan, or Jay, is a pharmacist and an attorney. He received his PharmD from the University of Illinois and was a chief pharmacy prosecutor with the Illinois Department of Professional Regulation and has now been in his current practice for 20 years. Jay is an active member with the Illinois Pharmacists Association and currently serves as a regional director on the board of directors. If you are a pharmacy technician, pharmacist, or pharmacy owner who has been contacted or accused of a legal violation by the state board, DEA, PBMs, or any other agency, Contact Jay at 630-310-1267. You can call a lawyer, or you can call a lawyer who knows pharmacy, because he is one of you. You can find more information about the Law Office of Joseph J. Bogdan on their website at www.jjblawoffice.com, or call 630-310-1267. Again, 630-310-1267. Hello, I am Ben Calcaterra, and I want to let you know just how important it is to hold a membership in the Illinois Pharmacists Association. The Illinois Pharmacists Association stands up for all pharmacists across the state, from community to health system, academia to long-term care. Your membership will strengthen the efforts of the entire association. Consider joining today to gain valuable insights and updates about news and events affecting the profession of pharmacy in the state of Illinois. To gain educational opportunities such as CPEs and certificate training programs, or to help advocate to protect the abilities of pharmacists to practice in the best way they possibly can. Stand up for your profession, stand up for your state, and stand up for your patients. Join today. Call the office today or log on to IPHA.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IL Pharmacist. That's plural with the S, IL Pharmacists. And we're back from those fine words from our sponsors and about membership from IPHA. So important. Please join. We could use your help and your support. Uh, So let's just talk about everything. I mean, we've had the oral arguments at the Supreme Court. We've now heard the debrief by the CEO of the state of Arkansas Pharmacy Association, John Vinson. We will link in comments a link to the NCPA debrief, which is very important to, to listen to. So if you haven't yet, please click that link and, and go go watch and listen because they have a lot of important information in there. Um, but, but let's just hear, guys, boots on the ground. You were there in person getting all the firsthand knowledge. Tell me, how was it? Cody, what was your experience like? How, how did you feel today went? You know, Ben, it was a very uh, surreal experience being here in Washington for this case. I think that, uh, you know, this is such a, a monumental occasion for our profession and really for the whole United States health system and for states' rights in general. Um, overall, I thought that uh, the justices, with a couple possible exceptions, seemed very favorable uh, in our regards towards Rutledge. Um, they really seem unpersuaded that the different state laws would be too onerous for PBMs who already deal with a, a myriad of complicated issues to deal with. 
So I'm really feeling optimistic about this right now. I, I also agree. I, I, I do have this great feeling of optimism after hearing all the arguments. Of course, there's a few dissenting views. There's, there always are, or else there wouldn't be a need for this type of a, a case to be heard. But, um, you know, it's, it's good to hear. I, I always say this, you know, it, it's, it's good to hear the other side because you know what their playbook is. You know what, what's being talked about. You know how to defense and combat those opposite views. So so we've learned something today, especially when we go back to our state legislature. We, we know what's the issues, uh, how to combat those, how to write better laws that, that don't run into these types of barriers, um, which we won't have to worry about after we win this case, right? Uh, so, so yeah, I, I, I agree with you completely. Uh, Garth, g- give me your view. How did you think today went? I'm still cautionally optimistic here. Um, I thought it was very interesting, and and I saw comments coming out from our pharmacy brethren that, you know, it didn't sound like we were doing so well at the very beginning, and I understood that. And I think it was more of just trying to get into the understanding of how Supreme Court cases, arguments um, are heard. And... And it's really understanding that there's a lot of work that goes in the head of these cases. And it's really more of a time for the justices kind of to ask their cleanup questions and things that they haven't um, fully um, got answered for them by reading all these voluminous briefs. And so it's a lot different than how we see other court cases. And so it wasn't like a a back and forth as you would and like no big surprise reveal or any type of a um a lawyer shenanigan to you know really hit one on the chin of 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 the opponent so it, it was very clinical in a judicial um standpoint and that once you kind of understood that that's where we were operating from you really start to look back at the Solicitor General Brawny um, for Arkansas and really understanding that he kind of helped set everything up and was really kind of taking some of the um, harder establishment questions from the justices. And then um, Deputy U.S. Solicitor General uh, Lou came in and really started hitting balls out of the park really establishing and codifying what he had put in in his uh, in, in backing up his original brief from December. That right there, listening to those two gentlemen defend our position, really, let alone, you just cut it off right there, and it really sounded pretty good after you start to look at it from a, a clinical judicial point of view and not what we normally think of in, in a in a law hearing and then you listen to at least from my point of view from PCMA with um, Seth Waxman and he wasn't as clear on his responses back to the justices and it didn't seem like he had a, a sheer footing on how to answer some of the justices questions and kept repeating himself and that's where it got into the point. I know in the interview I said it just made it sound like they were whining about this was just going to be an overburdensome process for them, even though they created the most obtrusive <laughs> regulatory or non-regulated 
um, pricing practices known to man. But it seemed like he kept getting back in the same arguments of the same two things of this is going to cost patients more money and this is going to, um, th- and this is just going to be too much of a regulatory burden for them. And that's where I know Cody, you and I had discussed where on the costs and you, you had a good point on that. All right. So uh, as we were saying earlier, Garth, I thought it looked particularly weak for the respondents when one of the justices asked them for facts and figures in terms of how much the cost of state regulation would affect the prices paid by beneficiaries, and they literally had no dollar figures to give them. So if you're going to say rate regulation of PBMs is a direct plan interference due to beneficiary cost such that it does trigger the ERISA preemption clause, I would think that you should have figures to back that up. And you can't tell me that they don't have the actuaries to create those figures. So to me, I think it either looks very unprepared or uh, it really exposes the tenuous nature of the claims they're making. Well, if they start throwing around numbers and it starts showing the real transparency of of the monies that they've kept that are supposed to have gone to pharmacies all these years, and they, they don't want to show the 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 um, gains of their thievery. You know, one of the themes that keeps coming up in, in all of these arguments and, and talks is the complexity of the PBMs. It came up a few times today from both the justices and from Seth Waxman on behalf of PCMA talking about how complicated the whole system is. Well, let's review. The PBMs are the one who made it complicated to begin with, um, and, and part of their argument is it is such a complex ask by, by having these onerous uh, rules from the state of Arkansas placed upon them that they now have to follow that it will be even more complicated and arduous for them to uh, produce the services that they are currently producing. Well, here's the thing. Um, Justice, Justice Sotomayor actually asked a question of, is the complication factor of the PBMs administering these claims so difficult that other PBMs are not around because it's too complex for them to do now. And think about this. What she is asking is, is the PBM structure so complex that no one else can play the game? Well, no. The The question should be, is the PBM so large that no one else can play? And And that's the true issue here. It's not a complexity issue. It's a competition issue. And, and the complexity that, that we are talking about, about how difficult all of these rules are, Seth Waxman actually said, we have hundreds and thousands of, of MAC lists that are unique to pharmacies and contracts and plans so that, you know, we can administer all these different combinations so that one pharmacy is getting a MAC list that might be different from the pharmacy down the road. You talk about complex. They made their bed that they're now living in. Yes, and to that point, Ben, if they can make all of these MAC lists, would it not seem logical that they should be able to keep track of 50 states? That is exactly the point. If, if, 
if the argument is it's too complex, yet they argue that they're able to handle all of these MAC lists that we say should not be so cumbersome to pharmacies, but they're saying it's okay because they can handle the complexity, yet they say these rules are too complex to add on to what we're doing. Well, it seems a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? It does. And I think it adds on to another point that, you know, one of the questions that was being brought up, especially from the PCMA side, was trying to say that there needed to be some more uniformity. And they kept going back to the brief of J.B. Hunt Corporation. And it's amazing to me how employers need to be continued to be educated on how they are screwed over in these plan benefit designs, especially on the PBM side of the equation. And if you, if we all know about how many different MAC lists there are within a specific pharmacy group, let alone state by state of these m- national plans, it, there's, there's already a discrepancy in the uniformity of, of how these plans are designed. And the employers are just being, the wool is completely over their eyes. And that is something that I hope after we get a favorable ruling here in Rutledge, that we can continue to do these magnificent reforms that we've been able to do on a nationwide level. And believe me, we're going to be coming out swinging here in 2021, regardless of where, when we have the decision read, because we'll, we'll talk about that here in a minute. But we have got to continue to fight as though we've won. And that's one thing that I don't think PCMA is completely ready for, is that pharmacy is not going to just sit back and wait. We're coming out fighting this year, and we're going to be coming out hard and full force. Yes, and something else, Garth, you know, you touched on the complexity of educating the plan on the PBM shenanigans, but coming out swinging this year, we have to keep remembering that our Achilles heel has continuously been the complexity of the PBMs. No matter who we're talking to, no matter who we're educating, legislators, the public, plans, they all need education on how the PBMs work. I mean, we have the most knowledge outside of the PBM world on how PBMs act, and we don't have all the tools that we need to understand how the PBMs act. I mean, they they can continuously say it's confidential and proprietary information, and, and you know we cannot have access to all the bits and pieces of the data. So trying to use what we have to explain to legislators, trying to bring a bill to the table, is is has, has always been our biggest problem. You know, when when you're given ten minutes in in an office in a quick you know elevator talk, and and you're trying to to get all of this information in, I mean, we could use an hour to explain how the PBMs act and and how the money flows and and why it it's affecting our patients and and losing access to care and blah 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 everything that we go through. It's one of the most difficult aspects to understand of healthcare today, and we. Um, you know, being pharmacy in general, are trying to explain this to the Supreme Court of all people today, trying to educate them on on what's going on. Now, early on, we talked about, you know, all the briefs, and, and, and maybe we should just explain to our listeners that what we're talking about is prior to these oral arguments, 
organizations and groups and, and companies that wish to could submit a brief on one, how they feel the argument should go and, and if the Supreme Court should reverse or uphold the the last decision that was made. And two, they give all the background explaining why they feel that way. And all of these briefs that have been submitted have all the information on how they explain what a PBM is and what a plan is and how the pharmacies are reimbursed and tying it back to travelers. You know, we heard travelers and, and references to that case about 100 times today because uh, it's the closest thing that we can relate to what's going on here. Um, but but all of these briefs, you got to understand these these Supreme Court justices are reading I don't know what 20, 25 briefs that have been submitted, something like that. And, um, and that doesn't include all the clerks' memos that help detail and and pull it all together for them. Exactly. There's all this information they have to 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 combine and 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 regurgitate out to to have these discussions on where this should go. And my goodness, this is the most complicated discussion at the most highest level of the judicial system. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of factors at play. There's a lot of variables happening. But even though we have all this happening, even though we have all these variables, even though we have these different arguments coming from different sides, we, the pharmacists, the people who were in the room today discussing this, feel confident and optimistic walking out of that room that we have a great leg to stand on and we have a great chance to win this argument. You know, Ben, you brought up the Traveler's case and I found that interesting. Uh, I think that the analogy to that particular case is going to be critical and will turn on the fact that the PBM is a third party. It's not a plan itself. So the plan being who directly deals with the beneficiaries. And the bottom line finding here. Uh, in favor of PBMs would result in too great of an expansion of the ERISA preemption clause. And I think that the court will take this opportunity to tailor and maybe clarify the preemption test standard. And Cody, I think you make a really good point there because this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, that this is all about the preemption clause. If the justices decide to rule in favor of the PBMs, this widens that exemption clause way further than it was ever designed for. And that's where I think some of the purists on the wording, such as Clarence Thomas and Gorsuch and maybe even Kavanaugh will really take a look at this because this really pushes it, pushes us into an area of if they're, if, if they're not regulated and if they're allowed to be under this preemption, now you have such a massive hole in a market that has over a billion dollars in, in the marketplace and no one gets to have any type of a say. And that's very unusual for the government just to let something like that just happen, even though we've kind of let it happen for the last 35 years. But I think the Solicitor General of Arkansas was really making that point also in his closing remarks. We touched on this a little bit in the interview was that, you know, if you took a look at minimum wage, if you allowed minimum wage to only be a federal standard, didn't allow the states to add on to their parts into that as well, what type 
what, what, what type of structure are you setting up? You're basically setting that the states have no rights on anything that's established as an extension of the federal government. And so we really have to be very careful with what happens here in this ruling because it could have massive implications on other laws outside of what we're talking about here in pharmacy. And so, and even beyond healthcare. And I thought there was another good point that the Arkansas Solicitor General made in, and I'll be abbreviating his comments, was he was basically saying, you know, if a pharmacist has a moral right to object to a prescription based on it, to the, the, any type of moral ethical objection, that shouldn't they also have the same right to do it also if the price doesn't equal? And I think that was a really good point, and that's something that we've been talking about here in Illinois and something I think we should definitely be having a, a very hard discussion with the General Assembly about. And it, and it really helps, helps give us a little bit of hope as we start to look at this PBM issue. But one thing that I want to make sure, and it's something that Cody and I were discussing a little bit at dinner, was... When we win this battle, and I really meant what I just said, when we win this battle in this war, we're going to win this war. But we have to be very careful of what comes in behind. It's just like in World War II. We, de- we defeated the Nazis. But then we had the Soviet Union come creeping in. So we just have to be very careful when we defeat the PBMs of what comes in to replace it or what comes in that we haven't really started to put our eye on yet. So I don't want to be a doom and gloomer here, but we will win. This is going to be a great day for pharmacy when this dis- when this decision is 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 released. But we have to be very careful as we go in the future to make sure that the future that we design does not come back to hurt us. And you know Garth, you were just speaking about the moral objection to filling a prescription versus the financial exception to filling a prescription. And something that that was said today that has stuck with me, and I waited and waited through the oral arguments to hear this, and finally, I I wrote down in my notes, finally, it it was mentioned that pharmacists are not asking for a piece of the beneficiary's money. We are not as a pharmacy, an operating pharmacy, we are not asking for our cost to be passed on to the patient. What we recognize is that the PBMs have an extremely large piece of the pie, and what we are asking for is, is and, this, and, and this is a quote, a reallocation of those profits. Okay? That's all... That, that was that was being asked for because you know one going back to one of the key functions of this this whole case is is this going to change the plan benefit uh, to the patients themselves and our argument by asking for a reallocation of the PBM's profits is not to be passed on to the patient but to come out of the PBM and that's the whole differentiator between plan and third-party administrator. And Ben, you're exactly right. And it was interesting to hear that even today, even though we've got the smartest judicial attorneys as the justices digging into this issue, it still was like, 
like the definition of what is a PBM was never, was still not completely clear. And th- that's where it was very interesting because we were talking about the, like you said, the plan versus the plan administrator versus the third party administrator and then the PBM. But as we, we all know, that's one of the biggest issues is they keep trying to hide in all these little corners so that the light never hits them fully. And this has been the first time that the light has been shown directly on them in this Supreme Court case. And hopefully they got a little sunburn today. Speaking of that, I was surprised that vertical integration never entered the chat either. Well, I I will say that it kind of started to, and then they decided to stop because they started leading down the discussion about the Sherman Antitrust Act, and I believe it was with the Chief Justice, and he said, well, that gets us, in, I believe it was Chief Justice or the the attorney said, that gets us down a whole different road here, and probably because it's a definitely a discussion they did not want to get into because that brings into the bigger issue that hopefully a further case will be able to dig into is whether or not that these PBMs need to be broken up. And, you know, whether we look at an old AT&T breaking up of Ma Bell again, and that's something that a future court will have to decide. You know, the complexity of it, PBMs are completely for that when it benefits them, but not so much when it provides consumer protections. So that brings up a very good point. There are so many rabbit holes this case could go down from here. Um, Really, we're just scratching the surface, I think. I think you're right, and I'm really glad, even though it's taking so long and there's been a lot of angst along the way, I'm really glad to see that pharmacy finally had its day. It definitely had its day. There were a lot of eyes and ears watching, mostly ears because it was audio only, but there was a lot of people tuned in, laptops, phones, whatever they had available um, to listen to this case. I I mean, social media was going nonstop while this case was, was going on, listening to tweets and Facebook posts and, and everybody having their opinions on what's going on and, you know, did we do enough and did we get it in and, and, you know, did we do enough damage? Um, you know, this is our big moment and something that we've been trying to impress upon our profession is how profound of an effect this case has on the entire profession. We sometimes have the conversation when we're talking on the podcast or when we're talking in networking groups about how the different silos of pharmacy are affected. And sometimes we have the feeling that our chain pharmacist brethren don't understand the PBM's effect on them. And I think it's, it's important for us all to come together so that we all understand. Our chain pharmacists need to understand if they don't. And I think a lot of them are, are, are coming around to understanding what's going on because we've been talking about this so much. But all of the issues that we're seeing in pharmacy, not all, I mean, it's not 100%, but let's just be, be fair, 99% of the issues that we're seeing in pharmacy right now are pretty much directly attributed to PBM shenanigans. The problems that they are underpaying pharmacies. I mean, I mean, just think about it. If, if you're working in a chain store and you're on the counter and you've got two techs and 600 scripts to fill, 
they're not going to give you extra tax if they're not making money in the pharmacy. So the PBM reimbursements have a direct correlation to your workplace safety in the pharmacy. So when you ask us as the association to help you get better workplace safety and a better workplace environment, please help us in issues like this because it will trickle down to a better workplace for you and all of us in pharmacy. This has its tentacles in every area of pharmacy, I promise you. So if, if, you, if you have not taken the time to fully invest yourself in, in what is going on here, not just with Rutledge, but in PBM reform in general, this is the time. This is the time. This is a pinnacle moment here. We are, are all coming together to, to fight the good fight for all of us to move forward as a profession. Because if this fails and we have a domino effect of, of laws starting to fail because of this issue and others, we will start having a massive failure in pharmacy. Stores will close. I'm telling you right now, we've had stores close. We will have more stores closing. Those stores closing mean more volume being pushed onto the change. You think you're, you're having issues now filling scripts. Wait till that happens. Then what's going to happen? If there's no independent competition, the chains are going to start combining their stores because they don't have to be on every corner. Then mail order is going to start getting more volume and they're going to start closing some of those brick and mortar chain stores. I mean, this is all my opinion only, but but this is a real this is a real possibility here. So, you know, this it this will definitely have an effect. If if you if you think you're insulated from it, you are not. So if you haven't helped with our advocacy fund, if you haven't helped by Becoming a member of both IPHA or your state association, wherever you may be listening, APHA, NCPA, if you're an independent, chain drugstores, Garth, can, can chain pharmacists join NACDS? Only the owners can, but that's where chain pharmacies, the APHA is a good home, and absolutely your state's a good home. Absolutely. You've, you've, you've got to join. You've got to be a member. You've got to have a voice. If, if, if you want to complain about poor standards right now and, and, and you've got a real bad situation at your store, have a voice. Let your voice be heard. Join. 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 Now's the time. You know, ben- It affects us all. You brought up some good points about how this does really impact every aspect of pharmacy, whether people realize it or not. Um, Obviously, uh, I have a diverse background coming from independent, and it's very obvious in that setting to see what is happening. Um, But I was telling Garth and John earlier, I said, I've been getting messages today from from old classmates and friends that I haven't heard from in a long time. One of those works at uh, the pharmacy in Target, formerly known as Target Pharmacy, now owned by another three-letter corporation. You can say the evil name on this podcast. Come visit Satan. Um, So, you know, it's a good 
sign whenever you see people like that realizing the impact of this. And even as I was telling John earlier, coming from a hospital now, uh, you know, being a rural hospital, we rely so heavily on our 340B program. And when our contract pharmacies start losing business and they start suffering, that impacts our our savings down the line and ultimately the the access and care that we can provide to the community and to our patients. So it is a far-reaching issue here. Absolutely. And I think one thing, and we've all touched on it, is we, and we've all had people reach out. I mean, I've even had people I haven't heard from in a very long time interacting today, asking questions about, you know, how can they help? Is there a way we can, you know, email the justices or, you know, sign petitions? And, and unfortunately, we're past that point because there's no way to solicit directly to the justices like we would um, a senator or a representative or a governor. Um, but that's where it all starts. And I was really glad to hear Doug Hoy from NCPA say yesterday you got to get into politics or get out of pharmacy. And that is so true. And it, and this is something that we have preached at IPHA for a long time. And that's one of the reasons why we say we're the voice for pharmacy in Illinois. And that voice comes from you. And this is a time, if you're not a member of IPHA, this is the time to finally join us. We have got a lot of work to do once we win this battle here. And we have, and that's not just with PBM reform, but also with provider status. We have to make pharmacy sustainable going forward. But it all starts with you being part of IPHA and being part of APHA and whichever specialty organization helps fit your practice setting. It is part of our obligation as a professional to help move it forward. And we are such at a critical time that we are being crushed and pushed backwards because of stockholder interest from the PBMs. And I know a lot of you think I'm a broken record on this, but as Ben said, 99% of our problems are because of this other three letter word. It's the PBMs. And we have to, we have to finally, and we have today, the, the line in the sand was permanently drawn today and we will see what that decision comes. And believe me, I want to be a fly in the courtroom on Friday when they secretly vote behind closed doors and the, and the decision's known. And we won't know for a number of days, weeks, and months. But know for a fact that whatever happens, IPHA is going to be here. We're ready to fight. We're going to get loud. We're going to move forward and we're going to change pharmacy for the better, regardless of what happens here in Rutledge. You know, Garth brought up some good points there. And I think right now this is a a superb time for IPHA and for the association in general. I mean, we have made it to the steps of the Supreme Court. Um, Pharmacy is taking the spotlight and as I was touching on earlier, I've heard from so many people today excited about what's going on. I think that this is a good opportunity to to seize the energy that's out there and really start getting people involved and tackling some of these complicated situations. Um, as Rahm Emanuel would say, no good crisis should go wasted. So, you know, the PBMs are, are a true healthcare crisis, and we need to seize every opportunity right now. 
to jump on this while the ball is rolling. I'll agree with you. And one last thing, because it's been floating in my mind this whole last couple of days we've been up here. You know, we keep, you know, focusing so much on the COVID pandemic. But I think we're finally seeing that hopefully Rutledge will be the cure for the PBM pandemic that we've all suffered from for way too many years. You're exactly right. How many lives have been lost or affected because of these complex and greedy companies that's right and and i truly hope that that we're on the right page here moving forward um it's a great analogy garth about the pbm pandemic and i like i like that we might start using that more let's let's jump into this membership thing one one last time and we're going to move on if you remember last year you got a lunch break thank ipha amongst others if you remember last year, if you're an independent, House Bill 465, that was step one of many to come. Thank IPHA, amongst others. But these are things that should prove, beyond any doubt that you had in the past, that IPHA is moving forward on your behalf. We cannot continue moving forward without you in our army. So please join. Call the office. Log on to the website. We'll put all the links in the in the bio here. We'll put our advocacy fund in the bio. Please consider joining and donating to the advocacy fund so that we can keep this ball moving, we can keep fighting, and we can make a better future for pharmacy in the days to come. You're exactly right, Ben. And I know that, you know, as we've talked about advocacy for the last few years, some of our our members and uh, members of the public have expressed some concern about backlash from the PBMs. Um, but as we've seen, the PBMs aren't letting up in any which way. So you're going to get audited whether you join in the, this fight or not. You're going to continue seeing your bottom line shrink whether you get into this fight or not so at what point do you just give up or do you say damn the danger and join us and give it your all um i mean really this is almost like a call to arms right now we have got to get everyone into this fight right now come hell or high water we're gonna win it um that's just that's just a fact right there, and the facts are the facts. Well, I think we've hit on all the points here. We've discussed the oral argument. We've talked about where it can go, what the deciding factors may or may not be. We heard from John Vinson from Arkansas. Great props to them. Go Arkansas for bringing this up for everybody. Um, I, I, I don't think we've left anything out on the table here. We, we've, we've, we've laid it all out. Uh, so, so let's wrap it up here. We thank all of our listeners for, for this. We know it's a momentous day, and we are super proud that IPHA could represent the state of Illinois and the professional pharmacy in Washington today. Our president, Cody Sandusky, and our executive director, Garth Reynolds, in Washington, boots on the ground. Thank you guys for uh, your representation for the state. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, everyone, for allowing us to have this opportunity. 
Yes, thank you, Ben. And again, to everyone, thank you for, for all you do for our profession. Well, thank you, Cody. It's just something that comes natural at this point. So let, let's just wrap it here. Um, we thank our listeners and our sponsor, the Law Office of Joseph J. Bogdan, for supporting this show. Check back regularly to hear new episodes as we will keep you updated on legislative matters happening around the state. You can find us on the internet at IPHA.org, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as IL Pharmacists. That's plural, with the S. IL Pharmacists. Follow us today to stay in the know. That will do it for this installment of Illinois Farm Talk. Stay tuned for our next chapter as the Voice for Pharmacy in Illinois brings you another edition of Illinois Farm Talk. Thank you for listening to the Illinois Farm Talk podcast.